Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 13. In a minute or two, we'll, I'll read verses 11 through 18. This is the third sermon in a new series. Or as I mentioned last week, you could, uh, you could see it as a continuation of our fall series, which was Daniel chapters 1 through 6. But here you could use the word for this new series, Apocalyptic, and we are bringing in, uh, looking at parts of the book of Revelation, and then also, with God's help, uh, Daniel chapters 7 through 12. If I haven't made this uh, crystal clear, let me just say that why would, why would some Bible teachers, Bible scholars, why would some people group together the books of Daniel and Revelation? You don't, you don't have to. Uh, you can certainly look at each one in its own right, and in many ways we want to do that. Uh, but when you look at the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, you've, you've heard the word uh, genre. Uh, what type of literature are we, are we dealing with here? And that's why I mentioned that word, of apocalyptic. And so uh, that's particularly Daniel chapters 7 through 12, and then the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is also contains like the New Testament letters. It also contains uh, epistles in the book of Revelation. You think of the seven churches, and the book of Revelation also is prophecy. So it, the book of Revelation is not only this cool word apocalyptic, um, but that is perhaps probably the main thing. And so that's why they often go together. And we want to see that, uh, that God is king and that the Lord God has his Christ. His people may be persecuted. We are called to endure. Would you join me in prayer and would you actually join with me even though I'll be the one giving voice to prayer? Let's bow together. O oh Lord, great God, we want to humble ourselves before you. Even in the dust. For you are great. Lord, you are eternal. You are holy. You are good. You are God and we are not. Lord, we pray for help to humble ourselves as we ought before you this morning. And we thank you, as Pastor Ray already prayed, that our Lord Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is the wrath-bearing sacrifice. Lord God, we see in Psalm 90 that you are angry with your people. And yet, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of your love, Father, we do not perish under your wrath. 
Lord, wake us up to your glory this morning. Help us. Help me. Help us to hear from you. Bless even now the reading of your word. We believe in God, the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're physically able, why don't you stand? Revelation 13, 11. Revelation 13, 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs, verse 14, that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666 or 666. You can be seated. I said this is the third sermon in this new series. The first was Revelation 13. The second was Daniel 7. And here we are again. One of the things that we want to do today as we work towards a goal, as we work towards the end of the sermon, is we want to... uh, work toward a place near the end of the sermon where we can make a short list of possible antichrist candidates, which should include Henry Kissinger. Glad you laughed. It's good. It's good. Revelation 13, 11 through 18 is our text. We need to look uh, beyond that as well. I want you to see something really important. And in a sense here, in a sense, I do want to start at the end here at the beginning. Let me start at the end. Look, and you'll have noticed this already in what I read. Look at verse 18, Revelation 13, 18. What does he say there? He says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now that's that's interesting, that one of the most fascinating things for people in the Bible. But I want you to notice again, not the end of the verse right now, but notice uh, near the beginning. He said, let the one who has understanding. Before that, he said, this calls for wisdom. 
And so the first thing that I want you to see this morning, in many ways, a primary thing, one of the most important things, I want you to see two calls. I want you to notice these two calls. Again, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. You know that sometimes when we look at a paragraph of Scripture, if you've been here long at all, I like to think of it like a sandwich. And, and you could think of this like a sandwich, and you could think of verses 11 through 17 as the, as the meat, as the inner part of the sandwich. And then you could think of the two verses that bracket the center portion, which would be verse 18 and verse 10. There are, as I said, the first thing this morning, the first thing is two calls. This is it. This calls for wisdom. Look at the very end of verse 10. Look at the Bible. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. My friend, as I've said before, the book of Revelation doesn't need to be more murky or more mysterious than we sometimes make it to be. We don't need this morning to get hung up too much at all on all of the interpretive nuances of the number 666 or the mark of the beast, although, of course, it's a, it's a good thing to look at that. The book of, the, of Revelation is actually in many ways very clear, and it is for us today. It's for us today because we're Christians, which means we're followers of Jesus Christ. And if you, if you, uh, if you feel like there's, wow, what's all this going on here? Don't miss this. Don't miss these two calls that I would say, I think, intentionally intentionally bracket this passage, right? Is it, is it a mistake that at the end of verse 10, and then at the end of our passage, at the beginning of verse 19, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. One call is for perseverance. And one call is for wisdom. And through Jesus Christ, this is what believers need. These two calls are precisely, listen to me, these are precisely what future believers will need in light of the false prophet and the Antichrist. Let me say that again. These two calls are precisely what future believers will need in light of the false prophet and the Antichrist. These two calls are precisely what the original readers of this book needed in light of the Antichrists of their day. Remember 1 John 2.18. There's Antichrist and there's Antichrists. Don't forget 1 John 2.18. Many Antichrists now. Verse 10b, the end of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 18, this is what these brothers and sisters needed then. This is what future believers will need in the future. This is what we need now. This is what we need today. This is precisely what we need. Perseverance. Wisdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice it again, even though I repeat myself. Just look at it. Verse 13b, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
verse 18. This calls for wisdom. John, John gives these uh, visions, but at just the right time, he pauses. And when he pauses, verse 10, and when he pauses again, verse 18, it's, it's a significant pause. Because this is the, the point. And again, this is what frames the passage today. Praise God for this last book of the Bible. Blessed are those who, in the gathered congregation, read it aloud and don't add anything to it or take anything from it. Number one is the two calls. Number two this morning, if you're taking notes in your head or on paper, number two is this, the beast and Daniel 7. The beast and Daniel 7. Now look up with me at verse 1. We're thinking about this second heading, the beast and Daniel 7. By the way, in our passage today, it may say in your Bible as the heading, the second beast... But in our passage today, it's one who rises from the land. Today is the false prophet from the land. Uh, Several weeks ago in Revelation 13, beginning in verse 1, is the beast from the sea, right? That's simple. It helps us. First half of Revelation 13, the beast from the sea, and then the false prophet from the land. I told you to look at verse 1, and you were ready, and then I started talking, and I was jerking you around. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, verse 1, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now when, if if you were here, when we looked at Revelation 13 several weeks ago, we noticed this beast, and we looked at this chapter on its own terms. And then uh, last week, we looked at Daniel 7 uh, on its own terms, but we always want to keep the whole Bible in mind. Because the whole Bible, in, uh, in one true sense, points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Your greatest need is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying in your place as your substitute, bearing the wrath of God for you. But we looked at Revelation 13 and Daniel 7 on their own terms. But I just want to notice, uh, even if briefly this morning, I just want you to see that here in Revelation 13, there's one beast, right? There's one beast, but if you will notice, this beast, if, uh, as the word has been used, he is a composite of the four beasts that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. Which is just to say, this beast in Revelation 13 is really a terrible beast. He's really terrible because, boys and girls, he is in a sense made up, made up of all the four beasts. They were terrible enough. In fact, if you would keep your place here, hold your place and turn to Daniel chapter 7 with me. 
Again, what's our second heading? The beast and Daniel 7. What have we said so far? Revelation 13, there's one beast, right? Terrible. Why so terrible? Well, because there's four beasts here in Daniel 7. Look at it again and be reminded. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, probably meaning Medo-Persia. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, Daniel 7, 6, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, verse 7 is kind of long there, right? And it's like Daniel saying, this is the fourth beast, but he's just totally outdoes the first three in terms of being of a terrifying nature. Verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. Paul's right there. Daniel saw four beasts. It's as though these beasts are combined into one great and terrible beast in Revelation 13. Let me remind you of what I think to be the main theme of Daniel chapter 7. I think the theme of Daniel chapter 7 is not so much of a focus on these beasts. Listen to me, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I think the theme of Daniel chapter 7 is that the saints will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever and forever and ever. The saints will receive the kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom that was given to the one like a son of man by the ancient of days. A kingdom given to the Lord Jesus Christ, one like a son of man by the ancient of days. In this kingdom, the saints will share. Is that you? Will you share in this kingdom? The saints will receive it and possess the kingdom forever and ever. It's as though Daniel's at pains to say that in Daniel chapter 7 as you keep reading. Before we leave Daniel, would you glance over to chapter 3 with me for just a moment? Daniel chapter 3. Let me read a few verses in Daniel chapter 3, and would you pay close attention and keep this in mind as this is going to pop up again. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, 
the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down, listen, fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. We leave Daniel for today, and we're back in Revelation 13. We're keeping in mind Daniel chapter 3. We've noticed these two calls in verse 18 and in verse 10. We're noticing, and this is a... This is the longest of the, of the three points. We're noticing the beast in Daniel chapter 7. What are we dealing with here when we're at the beginning of Revelation 13? Are we dealing with Antichrist, capital A? Are we dealing with a literal animal? I was listening a couple of days ago to Al Mohler's podcast, The Briefing, and I was really helped by something in particular as I was also thinking about this sermon. I want to share it with you. As I was listening to his podcast, here's what he said. What makes a totalitarian system totalitarian? Remember the word total. That is the basis for the term. And it means that there is an erasure of public and private. It means that there is a total claim of power, authority over all that is made by the government. Listen. It means that in a totalitarian regime, there is no zone of the private. That means not the family. That means not individual conscience. It means no voluntary associations. It means not churches. It means that the state and the state alone makes an absolute total claim. The wreckage, I'm still Moeller, the wreckage of the 20th century in the former Soviet Union and right now in what we can see in places like North Korea and China, what we see is full evidence of the fact that totalitarian regimes are based upon a basic idolatry of the regime. By the way, my emphasis on this and sharing this, I've got a bit more, is not to focus on one specific country, not to focus just, you know, just to bring up China, to focus on China, but because he's talking about the state. Most of them especially are rooted in Marxism and communism and are officially atheistic. That doesn't mean that there is no claim of ultimate authority. It just means that it has been shifted from God to the state. In the case of China, Xi Jinping is the representation of the state. When it comes to North Korea, even when there is acknowledged state worship of the leader, you're looking at Kim Jong-un as someone who is actually recognized as a deity, not just the dear leader. Again, just in case you're wondering, I'm, I'm not a big advocate of reading your Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and the newspaper ends up taking, that's not the point here. The point here is that I would say, yes, in Revelation 13, 
I would say, yes, you're dealing with Antichrist, even, even capital A Antichrist. I would say that for this original audience, you're dealing with the Roman Empire. And we could make a generalization. I think it's safe to do this because, again, it's my belief that the book of Revelation is for us today. As long as we understand what it meant to them, that in one sense, it's talking about the state. It's talking about the state. Now, we need to think about something for just a moment because we need to be clear that the authorities that be, talking about today, the authorities that be are ordained by God. The authorities that be are ordained by God. And so I would say that as you look at places like the book of Revelation, you clearly see a negative view of the state of human government, especially really powerful human government. And so some of us today, some of us may say, well, hey, great. I'm glad the preacher told me that there, that the Bible teaches that the government can be evil. Yes. And so some of us, it's it, maybe even in the last year, we almost say, we're not going to touch Romans 13 right now. Romans 13, what's that about? That's what I just said a minute ago. The authorities that be are ordained by God. And then the other place, and of course what I'm saying is we need to have the proper balance. The other thing is to say Romans 13, Romans 13. And we say, yes, Romans 13. The authorities that be are ordained by God. Yes and amen. And that doesn't mean it does not preclude the fact that the very authorities that God ordained can be anti-God and anti-Christ and persecute and kill the people of God. Do you see? Let me say this. For John, the human author of this book, for John, this, this beast in many ways represented the principle of power politics. I'm quoting here. The Roman Empire. But every succeeding generation of Christian people knows some equivalent of it. But are we not told by Paul that the state is ordained by God? How then can its authority come from the devil? Paul, of course, is right. There is no authority except from God. But at the same time, as the prince of this world, the devil took what God had instituted for humanity's welfare. Listen, listen. The devil took what God had instituted for humanity's welfare and made it an instrument of oppression. It is the devil's achievement that there should so often be bad law and tyrannical order. Law and order are good. It's the devil's achievement that there should so often be bad law and tyrannical order. And, and so it's, it's, it's both. It's both. Michael Wilcox says this. If this is helpful to you, I found it really helpful. Christians reserve the right to criticize and to discern continually between the state functioning properly under divine authority and the state acting illegitimately as divine authority. There is no God except for one God. 
whether that be the state or whether that be you living functionally in your life as God, in your heart of rebellion towards God, which is common to man, there is only one God, and you and I are not him. And praise God for his word, for the clarity of his word. As you see it, and I will say it is intentional. It is intentional that we're giving so much time here to the context. There is something here that we should not fail to mention. Because you see this beast in Revelation 13, 1 through 3. He's so terrifying. He is from the sea. He is a composite of Daniel's four beasts. But look at chapter 12, verse 17. Look at chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. I didn't tell you this at the beginning, but the title of the sermon this morning is this, For Still Our Ancient Foe. For Still Our Ancient Foe. It's, of course, from Martin Luther's hymn. Because not only are you dealing with Verses 11 through 18, false religion, the false prophet. By the way, you just compare Revelation 16, 13 and Revelation 19, 20. Why am I calling him the false prophet? Because that's what Revelation calls him. And you have, you have here this, this unholy trinity. You have this unholy trinity. We have one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is a ridiculous imitation of the Trinity. Because listen to me, you have the false prophet, Revelation 13, 11 through 18. You have the beast, Revelation 13, 1 through 10. And really, let us not neglect, let us not neglect our ancient foe. So tomorrow night, the men will resume our study. We were just doing it two weeks ago. Normally, we do it once a month. We're doing a book on Job by Christopher Ash, Trusting God in the Darkness. And one of the things that I find helpful, I know Pastor James and I were mentioning it in the last men's meeting, is his emphasis. If you know the book of Job at all, Job has these miserable comforters. These are friends, right? These are friends. And in many ways, they're okay. And in many ways, they are not. Part of the reason that they are terrible friends and that they are miserable comforters is that they have a worldview they have a way of looking at life that does not allow for Satan. And woe to us as the people of God if we have a worldview or even a functioning worldview if we live our lives as though we don't have real enemies, namely the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, not only do you see here in this passage, and by the way, Revelation 12 and 13 go together, not only do you see the false prophet and false religion, and not only do you see the beast and the state, which can be, even though ordained by God, it can be an instrument of Satan and the oppression of the people of God. But behind all of this, you have verse 17 of chapter 12, you have the dragon. And so what are we, what am I saying that we need to Focus all the more on Satan. No, we, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ who has conquered, who has defeated. He is the victor. 
As we've said before, God wins, and God has won through the cross of Christ. The question is, have you bowed the knee in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ? God wins. The book of Revelation is God will bring his judgment, and Christ has defeated the serpent. But we must see that all of this, again, would you look at verse 17 of chapter 12. All of this is because our defeated foe is lashing out. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. He's defeated. But we don't play games. And we do not deny the reality of Satan. And we... We must not live as though he is not real. There's two calls. There's the beast and Daniel chapter 7. And very briefly, there is this calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. Look again at verse 18 of chapter 13. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. We may very well need to take another time to look and to give due diligence and due attention to this passage. But maybe you'd like to know something about what I think, which of course ultimately doesn't matter. As only in so far as it accords with the Word of God, but I've told you already the main point is that this calls for wisdom and let the one who has understanding. Well, this 666 is controversial. I, in a sermon like this, I quote a little more than usual. Rick Phillips says this, the idea for many people, when you think of 666, the idea for many, including many biblical scholars, is that John is enabling us to identify the Antichrist because the letters of his name in Greek add up to 666. Using this and similar systems, Christians in recent years have argued that Ronald Reagan is the Antichrist since each of his three names had six letters. The American statesman Henry Kissinger was long considered an Antichrist candidate, not only because of his labors for a secular world peace, but also because the letters of his last name added up to 666 in the Greek system. The problem is that by this approach, there is virtually no limit to Antichrist candidates. One commentator fancifully made a case for Barney, the children's television figure, since the words cute purple dinosaur yield the calculation 666. The person most commonly associated with 666 is the Roman Emperor Nero. By translating the name Caesar Nero into Hebrew, the letters add up correctly so that some scholars see John's 666 as a code name for Nero. Rick Phillips goes on to explain why, and he gives the reasons why he doesn't embrace that view. I think some of his reasons are legitimate. Just so you know, I actually don't throw that view out the window. I see the reasons why it's not legitimate. Uh, the original readers uh, were not uh, Hebrew-speaking people. They were Greek. 
And so you have to do some gymnastics to get Nero Caesar out of 666. At the same time, we have to remember this book meant something to those who originally had it. It meant something to them. So I don't throw out the view of Nero Caesar. Some people say 666, the perfect number is seven. And the number of divine completion is seven, 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 seven. So to show the sinfulness of man, the perfect number, you subtract one and you get 666. Jesus' name, even if you take the numerical scheme, the name of Jesus actually is 888. So it's perfection plus one. And if I talk more, I will only show my ignorance. As I said, maybe there's more that we need to look at in an additional time as we take the Lord's Supper here soon. But let me say this, and let me ask for your attention, as you've already given, just for a few more minutes. We started actually at the end. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding, understanding and wisdom. Okay. Christians today, listen to me, need discernment. Verses 11 through 18 is about false religion. I don't think religion is a bad word. You know, a lot of people, you've heard me say this before, it's not religion, it's a relationship. Religion's a good word. But there's true religion, James chapter 1, and there's false religion. And there's also a propagandist of false religion, and that's the false prophet. And that's not only in the future, but that's today. You and I need discernment. So Tim Challies wrote a book years ago about discernment. Read good books about discernment. Make sure they're good books. Read the Bible. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Pray to God. God, give me wisdom. Jesus Christ must be your wisdom. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let Him be to you your wisdom. And then seek like Solomon to grow in wisdom. We need discernment. We need discernment, and we need faith that endures. We need a persevering faith. I mentioned this earlier, and men, I hope to see you tomorrow night. Let me close with this. What was the problem with Job's friends? They have no place in their thinking for Satan. We know from Job 1 and 2 that Satan is real and an influential person. But the friends have no place for spiritual forces of evil. In their world, evil is purely a human phenomenon. It has no spiritual dimension. Will you please, let's remember Ephesians 6. There is spiritual warfare. Revelation 12. Let us put on the whole armor of God, even through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has conquered. Remember that the gospel is not about what you do. It's about what God has done. It is finished. It is done through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Let's take a moment of silence as we prepare to observe the supper. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. 
Indeed, Lord, on earth is not his equal, but we thank you for one like a son of man who came to the ancient of days and was given a kingdom and dominion. We thank you for the kingdom of Christ. We thank you for the church of Christ. We thank you for the sure victory of Christ. Lord, help us by your grace to run into the ark who is Jesus Christ and to find our shelter. Grant us perseverance. Give to us discernment so that we would understand how to live in these days. Thank you for your revelation of yourself to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.